Superman. This is Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series. Welcome to the party, pal! Hosted by Arnie. So he's more of a Star Wars guy. Stuart. He didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And Jacob. Fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. It's a good day to die hard. So each week, we will be watching and reviewing a new Die Hard film, ending with a weekend of release review of the new movie. Another basement, another elevator. How could the same shit happen to the same guy twice? This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today we're discussing Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Starring Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia, William Sadler, Art Evans, and Dennis Franz. Directed by Rennie Harlan. I'm Arnie, the podcaster in the wrong place at the wrong time. Twice, no less. Stuart in L.A. Listen up, you pinko bitches. This is Jacob, ready to podcast harder. And this was the follow-up to Die Hard, coming only two short years later. Bruce Willis shot into superstardom as he jumped off the exploding building. And of course, the logical step is an immediate follow-up, this time directed by Rennie Harlan. And we are longtime fans? Um champions reviewers reviewers <laughs> i think that's the accurate noun there yes we have seen a lot of rennie here at now playing starting i think with that fourth nightmare film arnie you were kind of a fan of that deep blue sea exorcist the beginning and now die hard 2 now it should be said i've taken my knocks at mr harlan but i was really in his corner in 1990 every week of that summer I went and saw a movie, and Die Hard 2 was my absolute favorite of that year. I had heard that Rennie Harlan was going to make Alien 3. After I saw Die Hard 2, I said, he needs to make Alien 3. This is the man. This is an incredible film. It's the best film of the year, jumping up and down Rennie Harlan. That is Stewart in 1990. But coming back to it, I'm really curious to see, did Rennie Harlan fall off the cliff or was he always bad and I just didn't know it in 1990? This is my first time getting to review a Rennie Harlan film. But Stuart, was 1990 you a fan of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay? I was. I've skipped that one all my life. <laughs> I think I was at Flatliners that week. I don't know. Because that's the movie that got him the job for Die Hard 2. The studios were seeing the dailies from Ford Fairlane and they're like, let's give this guy Die Hard 2. I haven't seen the film. It's Andrew Dice Clay. I stay away from that guy. Who knows? Maybe, Arnie, you could see the good things in that that would convince the studio to give him this, what is now a big franchise. Oh, I see nothing good in that. And I couldn't believe the director ever went on to work again. But you give him projects that are in trouble and he'll turn something in. He will turn in a releasable movie. He's competent. He is a Hollywood craftsman. He will get your project done for the money you have to complete it. And that's not talentless. He may not be a visionary. He may not be an auteur. But there is a place in Hollywood for people that can bring a film in on time, on budget. And I think Harlan is that guy. For me, with Die Hard 2, I wasn't really familiar with Rennie Harlan as a name, even though I had seen two of his previous films. And 1990 was a year that... I was actually pretty cold on movies. The stuff I got really excited about, Dick Tracy. <laughs> I was there. Most of America was. Another 48 hours. 
those films just ended up leaving me cold. And I was at Die Hard 2 opening weekend as a fan of Die Hard. But for some reason, I just wasn't as hyped for it. I went in and we'll discuss how I feel about it. I feel pretty much the same now as I do then. But I did see it that opening weekend and it was one of the more memorable films of the year. Yeah, I don't think I saw this opening weekend just at the age I was at that time. I did see it in theaters eventually when it was released. I remember, though, the trailers and all these great one-liners about how this happens to him every Christmas. And, like, Bruce Willis is hilarious making these self-referential statements about the first Die Hard film. And this one's going to be even more explosive. You know, I was a young teen at the time, not knowing what sequels could do to a franchise. Hey, I completely can forgive youthful exuberance as the person who once said Lethal Weapon 4 was the best film ever made. (laughs) You've said a lot of movies that weren't the best movie of all time were the best movie of all time at certain points. But anyway, I think we should get to the plot now. You going to summarize the trailer for us? Sadly, by this point, the trailers had stopped having such great voiceovers and it would be another few years before In a World takes over. So just a standard plot summary. It's Christmas Eve and John McClane, now with the LAPD and back with his wife, Holly, and the now happy couple plan to spend Christmas at Holly's parents' house in Washington, D.C., and when the film opens, John is at Dulles Airport waiting for his wife's flight. Also at the airport are a number of reporters as drug lord General Ramon Esperanza is being brought to the U.S. to stand trial on drug charges. But Esperanza hired a mercenary special forces unit led by naked calisthenics performing U.S. Army Special Forces Colonel Stewart to break him out. A plan Stewart executes by taking over a small church outside the airport and hacking into all the air control systems, holding hostage the flights low on fuel and waiting to land at Dulles. McLean tries to stop the terrorists several times in the hopes his wife's plane can land safely, and when the airport techs try to regain control of the system, Stewart directs one of the planes to land, crashing it and killing all on board. To stop Stewart, a U.S. Army Special Forces team led by Major Grant takes control of the situation, but Grant is secretly in cahoots with Stewart, and the two sides are using blanks to simulate combat. McLean figures it out and takes a reporter's chopper to chase after a 747 that's about to take off with Stuart, Grant, Esperanza, and all their men. He jumps on the wing and opens a fuel tank, setting it on fire, causing the 747 to explode and leave a trail of fire for the in-air flights to use as landing lights. On the ground, Holly and John are reunited, Holly having had another encounter with slimy reporter Dick Thornburg on her flight, and they kiss as credits roll. And so, in the plot summary, there's just one question I have. McLean, since the last movie, reconciled with Holly, moved to L.A., joined the LAPD with Reginald Vell Johnson, and they're both vacationing in D.C. Why are they taking separate flights? I can only presume she moved up in uh, Nakatomi. She's probably running it by now. Last I remember, the head had been whacked. So she's a busy woman. She's got more to do in her life than probably John does in his. I just took it to mean she had to take a later flight because she was handling business business and couldn't fly out until Christmas Eve. She was working Christmas Eve last time. And it does make mention that John had, I'm guessing, had brought the kids out there. The kids are with Grandma, with Holly's parents. And so I think he just got a start on his Christmas vacation before her. 
But of course, we also need it to happen because Bonnie Bedelia is yet again going to be playing the exact same role. There's a lot of repeats here. I think a lot of people are playing the same role as last time. It's one of those sequels where they kind of just erased names but kept plot points for a lot of what happens here. Coming back to this movie, I don't feel like Holly's character is developed any more than it was than in the original Die Hard. She's a woman in peril being held hostage. It just happens to be in an airplane instead of a skyscraper. I'll take you one further. I think she gets the real short shrift here. In the last one, she was at least the strong woman who was taking care of her people. When her boss got whacked, she became in charge. And so she had an active role in interacting with the terrorists. Here, she's stuck on the plane. Thousands of people are stuck on planes. She's really given even less to do this time. But I agree, this is very much a repeat sequel. They even call it out in the movie, which may or may not excuse it for you. How can the same thing happen to the same guy twice? Yep. One thing that struck me as I was watching it this time, John and Holly totally in love. You know, she's paging him from this airplane phone, which had to cost like hundreds of dollars back then. It almost seems like they reversed the formula here. In the first one, they're not getting along. Their marriage is in strife. Here, they're love bugs. You know, I always think of like Ghostbusters where you get to that second, that Ghostbusters 2, and they've gone bankrupt. They've lost everything. They're getting sued by the city. They're in the pits. Here, it's almost the reverse. And as this film goes out, there's not that arc for these characters. It's taking away tension. Part of the tension of the first film was this was a couple heading towards divorce. And you could really read the movie as a love story. It's about terrorists helping two people realize they have more in common. This one, by not having the terrorist storyline influence anything going on with the marriage storyline, yeah, it makes it less interesting. It makes you wonder every time they cut back to Bonnie Bedelia why we should care. I agree with what you're saying, but by the same token, I like that Holly was such an important part of why McLean did what he did in the first movie that I'm glad they had a happy ending. They repeat so much in this film from the last one. I'm really glad they didn't repeat the marital tension there. I like that they had a happy ending and something good came out of Nakatomi. I'm just saying this film loses something because of that. Now it feels like your more standard action film where the guy's trying to rescue his wife or his daughter. There's just not that extra dimension that Die Hard brought with that relationship of, you know, the hero who he's trying to save, that that's also something in trouble here. It just loses something. Well, I'll take that a step further because... What is lost in addition to the fact that he's not estranged from his wife is the fact that he's not alone. In the first movie... He was the only one in the building who could take on the terrorists. And we made a big point last podcast of discussing how he spends the first third of that movie trying to get the authorities there. Here, the authorities are there as portrayed by Dennis Franz and his cousin Vito. And the military is there. Why the fuck is John McClane, an LAPD cop, sticking his nose in this, it's because he's now Arnold Schwarzenegger or any other action hero. It's not that he's the only one who can, it's that he thinks he knows better than everybody else around him. Really, in this movie, John McClane to me comes off like a dick. It is interesting how little he gets to do in the first half of the movie, how really impotent everyone is on the ground. The terrorists really have a plot in which they exert a lot of power, and McLean, yeah, he talks tough. There is a lot of sass coming out of that mouth. 
but I don't feel like he really does a whole lot. They give him some things to do, but largely I think they just portray him as being on to it much earlier than all the other authorities. Not that he has any solutions to fixing the problem. Yeah, he's much more proactive in this film. With the first Die Hard, I said, you know, he spends the first third of the film trying to hide, and then, the, you know, the second act, he's trying to get the attention of the police. He's not really going after the terrorists until he's forced to. Here, right off the bat, he's sitting in the airport. Oh, the days before 9-11, where you could just crowd that airport. Anyone could go through security and sit in those dining areas. And he's just, like, profiling people, I guess. You can smoke. You can smoke in the airport. Forget <laughs> 313. Light them up. And you could just walk right into the tower. Yeah, there's a lot of things about this premise that just make it a more standard action film than the last one. That said, I kind of like Bruce Willis in this again. I'm happy to see him back in the comfortable toupee of John McClane. I'm right there with you, Artie. I like McClane. I like most of his one-liners. You know, when we get to uh, Just the Facts... F-A-X, ma'am, just the facts. I'm groaning. Oh, come on. The theater was standing on its feet cheering. That was a loved line in 1990. I guess when fax machines were more rare in a sign of a, a status symbol back then, maybe that would get you a laugh. But I groaned. A lot of this dialogue had me groaning. The other thing is, of course, that John McClane's supposed to be an everyman, but women are like falling at him. This woman behind the counter is throwing herself at him. I've retconned it in my own mind because he has some mild level of reality star fame because of Nakatomi. They talk about how he was on Nightline, but that's giving this film a lot of credit that I don't really think that airline attendant watched Nightline. Well, he exchanged glances with the girl at the baggage claim in the first film. I I think he's supposed to have that everyday man appeal where he might not be the most muscular guy or the best looking, but there's something about him. He has that masculine appeal that I guess a certain woman would be attracted to. It should also be pointed out at this point, I think, that they took this premise from a book that was not written by Roderick Thorpe. Over at Books and Nachos, I'm covering 58 Minutes the original novel that they took this from, and none of the characters in it come from the Joe Leland world that the other two ones did. They literally just owned the rights to this novel and said, this would make a great movie, and decided it would end up being the great sequel to Die Hard. But the character in it did work for air traffic control. He was going through this divorce and conflirt, and all the women fell in love with him. He was this character that they kind of pushed Willis into being this time, and it had less baggage to carry by not being a sequel. I think it played better for that reason, but that's what you're seeing here. That's why they've chosen to go this route, is that they had a book that told them this would be a great premise. It should also be pointed out that the plot that the terrorists have has less stakes to it this time. Last time, they were stealing a bunch of money, right? Like, it was a heist movie. Here, they just want one dude coming from South America. Let him have him. Is it that big a deal? Yeah, that is so my point, is that I know the whole line, we don't negotiate with terrorists, but how many people die to keep one man in captivity? And he's not a terrorist. He sells some coke. He's a drug lord. Come on. It's not like it's been Laden on that plane. 
For the amount of time spent on exposition for Esperanza, like, a ton of time at the beginning of this, you get all these TVs, you get Colonel Stewart, I thought he's doing jujitsu naked, I get maybe calisthenics, <laughs> but he's got the TV playing on in the background, there's another scene where a news report's playing about Esperanza, I don't even know what the deal with him is, I guess he runs drugs because that was a thing in the 80s in the Reagan administration, South Americans running drugs into America, puppet leaders or military leaders, I don't understand Stewart's why he wants him? It was just because he was hired? I mean, he throws out some lines like, he's a real man, he's not one of these commies. Stewart keeps throwing out, you know, he calls the news reporter a pinko bitch, and oh, he's a drug dealer, so he's just like a really good capitalist, and this guy seems to like capitalists, and that's why he wants to free him? Like, you're close, Jacob, but this did come from the headlines. I didn't follow news at the time. I don't know at the time what Oliver North really was supposed to do, but I recognized that this Colonel Stewart character was kind of playing Oliver North from the Iran Contra affair of the 80s, and when I looked back into it, I went, ah, this is exactly it, note for note. The America sold weapons to Iran. Oliver North was responsible for this, and he funneled the profits to Panama, South America, where Noriega was fighting communists. And Noriega, in 1988-89, eventually was labeled a bad guy because he was also mixed up with drug cartels, and we hauled him into Washington, prosecuted him, and threw him in jail for decades. So this storyline, when people saw it in 1990, would feel very, very familiar. It would be a bin Laden public awareness kind of story. Well, and that's one of the big changes here. Watching these films back to back, one of the things with Die Hard is they didn't want to make it political. They wanted to give some charm to the terrorists, lighten it up a bit, which was a change from the book. It wasn't about these oil companies and that. Here, it does feel like it's very much the political times of the late 80s, early 90s with this going on, and it does have a different tone to it, especially later on. This is going to feel much darker than that first Die Hard film. And I give that credit to Rennie Harlan, who is just a darker director. He held a record for killing more people in this movie than any other action movie. And he is not afraid to go there, or at least wasn't at that point in his life. He would do dark. He would do extreme. He would do hard R films. He was not going to flinch away from it. I think that the approach that McTiernan took in the first film really worked for an introduction, but I'm not afraid of a little escalation. Well, this is a sequel. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be badder. It does take away some of the fun, though. I have to say that it just feels all more serious. And this time watching it with the now playing brain turned on, I was right there with what Stewart said. Why are you doing this all over this one guy? Right. My mind wasn't there in 1990, though. And the darker qualities you guys talk about, I think that's why I was into this movie more. You know, I was the skeptical one. I didn't want to go see Die Hard in 1988. It looked stupid. It looked like Bruce Willis being silly in an action comedy. But after I had seen it, came to this one, I thought this one was better because it was more intense, because it did go there. I think I wanted to have an experience that was really full throttle, and that's what I responded to. But coming back, these early action scenes... I'm not getting the same vibe off of this. I'm missing McTiernan when McLean finally starts throwing punches here in the baggage area. 
I think that the fights are still very well done. I like a lot of the fights here in the airport with the various airport mechanisms here in the baggage area. You've got all the suitcase going up and down and no wonder it always gets lost and crushed, but does it get crushed? Do they really have a policy of running every bag under a roller? That's how they like feel for it. No wonder things break in costumes. <laughs> what a terrible idea. You can crush someone's face under it? I have had so much luggage just completely destroyed by airlines, but I did think at least it hasn't come back with bullet holes. One of the things I think we all liked about that first Die Hard film was that even though you had 11 terrorists, they came up with new ways to off them. And I got to say, they carried that over. Like here in that baggage claim, we see a dude get crushed by a baggage belt roller. I do appreciate that. Yes, it starts with the shootout, but then McLean loses his gun. He resorts to using hairspray, which gets shot out of his hand. So he's got to crush a dude in a baggage roller. I do have a problem with the fact that that guy shoots at McLean two dozen times, misses two dozen times, but can hit that can. And why he shoots the can instead of McLean's head? Hey, that's aerosol. He's damaging the environment. He's an environmental terrorist. Got it. Yes. Give that guy the giant teddy bear. What a bullseye shot. And one of the guys does escape and returns to Colonel Stewart, played by William Sadler. Now, this is an actor who I know I've seen a dozen times. There's only one role other than Die Hard 2 that comes to mind when I think of this guy, though. He was the Grim Reaper in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That blows my mind that that's the same actor there. Didn't see it. I kind of like what he's doing. It's an easy knock to say that he's not living up to what Alan Rickman did. But it's a part that's not as much fun. He's a soldier with no sense of humor. He's got these skeletal features. The first time we see him, he's doing naked Tai Chi. You guys laugh, but that's how I do my sweating to the oldies every morning. I mean, I'm with this guy. I think that he brings something else. It's a physicality role. I think that that could be new, a nice new dimension. Maybe this time, John McClane will have to do more of a physical one-on-one combat kind of situation to get out of it. Alan Rickman was great. You're not going to do better than that. So yeah, let's see a different shade of villain. And I'm with this one. Stuart works for me. I like the gravitas that Colonel Stewart has in this. But again, he just feels far more rote and far more generic. Truthfully, at the very beginning of this film, some part of my brain knew Robert Patrick was in it somewhere and I thought this guy was it. I didn't realize until later that Robert Patrick was just one of his goons. This guy just is generic late 80s, early 90s action villain. Yet, I'm not even trying to compare him to Rickman, but comparing him to so many other bad guys from so many other movies, he lacks anything to make him memorable. He doesn't have good lines. He doesn't have anything that makes him stand out. I couldn't differentiate him from the bad guy from Under Siege or any of the other diehard ripoffs. You might have a point there, but that's true of this entire terrorist group. I think there's still a dozen characters. In Die Hard, I could tell at least eight or nine of them who was who. Here, I really only knew the people that would go on to be famous. It was like, yeah, when I saw the T-1000, I'm like, oh, hey, there's Robert Patrick. When I saw John Leguizamo, I went, is that John Leguizamo? It was! did the same thing had a pause and rewind for that it was a pause and rewind moment but it's not because his character did anything cool none of these characters are really interesting at all the only one that proves to be interesting is the one they introduce later john amos we'll talk about him but of this original crew taking over the church and setting up the clubhouse and all of that i think they all look kind of boring and silly and that's why i like sadler because i feel like he at least had a moment with us to kind of intimidate 
They left all the colorful characters working at the airport. The primary person that McLean is dealing with now is a different overweight cop instead of Reginald Vell Johnson, Dennis Franz, who will, just a couple of years later, show his ass on NYPD Blue. <laughs> I don't think of him in the same role as Al. First of all, we do get Al in this. It's a brief moment. You know, he's eating a Twinkie. He gets the fingerprints and the facts. It was just kind of a thing that made us go, ah, we wish you were back. You were a lot more fun than this crew. But I think the Al character that they really have here is Leslie. There's a short black guy who kind of does everything. I'm going to make the case throughout this podcast. Leslie is the hero unsung of Die Hard 2. You don't need to make that case because I'm right there with you. I really noticed that as I was watching the film this time. I'm like, that guy's going down to create signals and telling McLean where to go. He does everything in this film. This is a guy that actually knows where things are. And yes, he actually accomplishes goals that he sets for himself. He's a much better character. He's our Al. He's just not as funny as Al is the problem. And so he doesn't have the impact. I agree. That guy was amazing. He could rewire anything. He's coming up with ways to use transponder signals as radios. This guy, whatever he's getting paid working at the airport, he needs a raise fast. Yeah. Dennis Franz, to me, felt more like the guy in charge that was always thinking that McLean was a problem and that he was the real terrorist doing harm to a building. We were meant to hate this Carmine Lorenzo airport security head all the time. True, I wasn't saying he was a partner or a friend, more than he was McLean's contact with the real authorities in the situation. Thinking of this as the sequel, and what does a sequel do? Well, in that first film, there is this antagonistic relationship with the police force, besides Al, but... McLean never really dealt with that one-on-one. Here, okay, we're going to have that same thing, but now he's going to interact. And He's not alone in this film, like you called out, Arnie. He's going to interact, but I think it still needs to be antagonistic. He needs to bump up against those other authority figures. So I didn't mind him, you know, maybe because it was Dennis Franz, and so I was more willing to go along with it, but it made sense to have this kind of confrontation take place in this film. And again, up the ante and have it face-to-face instead of over walkie-talkies. Well, let's look at the first movie, and let's do one of those what-if scenarios. What if, in the first movie, John McClane radios for help, and all the police show up, and John McClane escapes out the building because the terrorists don't know where he is, he just walks down the 30 flights and goes out an emergency exit, and now all the authorities are there, which is what he wanted. Is he then going to start arguing with the cops, saying they don't know what they're doing, tell Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson to go fuck off, and then he's going to break back in the building and do it himself? Is that who John McClane is? Because that's what this movie is saying. I think if Johnson and Johnson showed up and McClane had escaped the building, and they're like, yeah, we're going to have 25% acceptable casualties, and his wife is in there, yeah, I think he is going to step in and now try to get involved again to have a better outcome. But to Arnie's point, it doesn't play as well. It isn't as much fun. Watching people on the ground, looking up and watching people in peril is not the same thing as running around floor by floor having the adventure. And yeah, they just keep contriving. Contrived is really the word that I kept saying in my head again and again. Reasons for McLean to go out on his own because no one would listen to him and fight the terrorists. You know, the first one is after they've taken over, our real hero, Leslie, says, why don't we go to the transponder and takes the best security guards and walks to the skywalk where it's an ambush. 
I mean, I guess this is the conceit of franchises is what is core about this story. So you think of like Terminator. Well, for a Terminator movie to be a Terminator movie, there's got to be robots that look like humans and you can't tell the difference. There's usually time travel involved. Predators. There's predators from outer space and they could camouflage themselves. For Die Hard, I mean, what is it? For me, looking at these first two films so far, it's that John McClane is kind of this everyday kind of guy. He is a cop, but he's stuck in these scenarios that involve hostages. I mean, is that what every film's going to be? Is hostage scenario? Is he supposed to be stuck by himself in a building for five movies? I think that's part of the problem with the Die Hard concept. That first film is a great film, but how do you make that into a franchise? Did they have to stick him in an air duct? That's all I'm saying. They stick him in an air duct to go rescue the Skywalk. I mean, you just had to like relive that thing. This is like seeing a band perform their hits 20 years after they were hits. Now here it's only two years later, but you're still getting some of that energy. You're remembering the fun you had with that song 20 years before, even though what's being played today isn't quite the same song. I'm having a lot of fun with these action scenes. I think, unlike Stuart, that Harlan is shooting them well and that they're coming across exciting, even if, yeah, they are very much a reprise of what we saw two years before. I don't like these action scenes. Coming back to it now, I think some of them are flat out horrible. And it's partly the dialogue that we have here. I mean, cracks about going through metal detectors, setting off the lead in your shorts and shit in your brains or whatever. I mean, just really terrible, terrible writing and just stuff that I never get into. The stuff I kind of mock when Arnold does it in his terrible action movies. And Harlan picks weird camera angles here. There's a lot of weird distorted lenses. There's a lot of strange camera choices. No, I don't think the action in this is anywhere on par with McTiernan. I like the action in this film, but the way it's shot is nowhere near as masterful. This seems like a much more traditional, rote American action film, the way it's shot. Looking at all the different angles McTiernan used and the way he would pan and everything he does with that, no, that's not here. I think there's still some very good shots to be had here. I like some of the combinations of close-ups and faraway shots and the way it's edited more than the way it's shot really helps it play. But there are some nice shots. You mentioned the SWAT team, Stuart. There's one shot specifically there. It's Robert Patrick's big moment where they do like a focus shift from his face to the gun as the gun shoots. I mean, there's some nice things in here. Is it as good as the first one? I'm just going to come out right now. There's nothing in this movie as good as what's in the first movie. But it's still good. Just because you've had one of the best meals of your life doesn't mean that the next morning you wake up and say this food is shit. I'm saying this is actually pretty bad. Coming back to it, it's a heartbreaker, but I've got to say, scene after scene, it's clunky. It's laughable. There are many times here where I'm going, oh my god, this is no better than a rote Arnold movie or a rote Stallone movie. And I did think Die Hard 2 was several cuts above that. I felt that way, Stuart, for the first half of this film. Once we get to this shootout, it shifts and it does become much more where I could get involved with it before. I'm like, uh, this John McClane, it is different. This was all part of the plan. Of course, we need to understand the terrorists are three steps ahead of everybody else. They knew this would happen. They had the transponder rigged to blow up anyway. It does. And then to punish the airport for even trying to get a word to their planes that are stuck up in the air, they crash one into the runway. Don't worry too much. It's only Windsor Air. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Cole Meany from Star Trek. I was freaking out. They killed Chief O'Brien back in the day. Now, of course, he went up a hill, came down a mountain, and fought with John Cusack and Con Air. But to me, this was Chief O'Brien in the day. I'm going to give him credit for this airplane crash because this is where the movie, I think, really goes dark. And it's because of the choices he made. When he shot this plane, he doesn't just show the pilots. He takes time to show the passengers. And, oh, sir, we've set up your connection. I know we're running a little late. We called ahead so we could get that connection. You know, it shows a grandma. And at one point, you know, we see a doll later on after the crash. He did show a little girl in there. And it really humanizes this flight. And it's something the studio didn't want. They wanted it to be just an empty cargo plane. But it's an upsetting scene to me. And it's because of the choices he made the way he decided to shoot that. Oh agree that I like that the people who are killed on the plane are humanized versus just an unseen body count or a cargo plane that would be a jump the shark moment. I would probably just start laughing and go, oh, those hardcore terrorists crashed cargo. How dare they? I mean, what they did was right, but it really drove home to me today being more sensitive to plane crashes since 9-11 that really just should have given up the general. And it really runs the risk with today's perspective of having me turn against John McClane. There's no way this film would get made today with this plot, I don't think. I mean, using planes as weapons to crash into things and kill the passengers, I don't think this film would get made today. You never know, Casino Royale had a terrorist bomb plot on a plane, and that was definitely post 9-11. I hear what you guys are saying, but I actually feel like this is the moment where we realize they can't let these guys get away. Up to this point, these were some terrorists that controlled the lights and controlled the speakers and were trying to get a bad guy. And now they are mass murderers of 233 people. You cannot let them get away. You cannot have them have what they want. This is the turning point in which we realize that these men must die. One of the other things that I like about this scene is that one of the trademarks of Die Hard is McLean barefooted running through glass. So far in this film, he's been running around. He's been doing a lot. He doesn't seem to have any weaknesses. And this is the biggest moment. You know, here's your superstar, your hero of the film. He's going to run out on that runway, I guess, light a couple of rags, hope the pilots see that. It doesn't seem like the best plan, but you expect him to be able to save the day. And here he fails and it's over 200 lives that die because he fails. I guess this is that moment where he's got the cut up feet. I feel like this is where Willis fails, too. Again, he comes off badly in them. I do not feel like he can reach those notes. I want to like Willis in this movie. I don't have memories of not liking Willis in this movie. And in the fun parts of this movie, he does work. But it's moments like these that I just go, ugh, he is just not up for this. He just is not capable of pulling this scene off. It was painful to me watching that scene and not for the reasons you guys are talking about. I'll split the difference here. It was a bad performance. I can't say painful, but I did look at it and just go, I should care more. Bruce Willis should be able to make me care more about the 300 people who just died. And instead, we get what one scene of him being consoled by the guy in charge of air traffic? <laughs> 300 people are dead, but don't you beat yourself up, John. To be fair, his wife is still in jeopardy and she could be next, but yes, I'm on the same page with you, Arnie. I feel like the preoccupation with John's feelings in this moment is not where the people that run the airport would be. 
And the press is already there to cover Esperanza that a plane crashes and this doesn't create the media frenzy that will come later in the film. Not only that, they're airing regular broadcasts. I'm sorry, when a plane crash like that happens, ALF is off the air. There would be no moonlighting on tonight. We would be talking about this tragedy. All of this thing is built around the premise that there's this incredible snow front that's going to keep these planes from being routed anywhere else or getting anyone else up in the air to help them or get any kind of message. But I know they tried their best with the budget they had, but truly, this is one area where I feel like today with CGI, they could give me some flurries that you need here because it's somebody standing on an apple box shaking some fake snow over Bruce Willis. There's just not a blizzard happening. Well, I think this is where your praise for Harlan comes in, where he's a director that could get it done. Because they filmed this at the Denver airport. There was supposed to be snow. That was one of the problems throughout the shooting. It was in the winter. There's supposed to be some damn snow, and it never snowed. They're using potato flakes. They're shipping snow from Canada, which is getting so warm as it's traveling down. By the time he gets there, it's a big block of ice. Like, (laughs) finally, with a few of the scenes, they got it to actually snow for real. But that was a big problem throughout the whole film. So you're not wrong. This snow is really really fake they were hoping to have real snow though i don't cotton to them using that canadian snow what's wrong with american snow (laughs) there was none (laughs) that was the problem i must say it makes a lot of sense what you're saying jacob because there were times especially at the end where like esperanza's walking outside where i don't think it's snow it seems like the leftover remnants of a pillow fight it's like little feathers falling down They were using potato flakes, and they talked about how, like, the potato flakes would land on the lights, and the whole set smelled like baked potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) What would have happened if they flew him in on a day where there was no snow? Would this whole plot be off? Was it all predicated on the fact that they needed a blizzard? two-front snowstorm to essentially trap these people in the air with dwindling fuel. And the fact that Esperanza has to escape. Who thought of that one? Like, he would actually have to break his chains and kill everyone on the plane and land the plane himself? This plot is crazy. Couldn't he have flown it to a different airport? Like a field where they could meet him and not have to go through any of this. I agree. But every time I saw Esperanza, I was just thinking about the Dos Equis guy. You know, the most interesting (laughs) man in the world. I don't always kill people, but when I do, I don't worry about cabin pressure. I mean, he shoots (laughs) out the window and he's still flying without oxygen. That is impressive. I didn't go to Dos Equis. I went to El Guapo from Three Amigos. Just like the worst stereotype of uh, Central American you can have. And that's Django, by the way. That's the original Django Franco Nero. He is a somebody here. This isn't just somebody they got from Central Casting. That is the biggest shock of tonight. But then, of course, there has to be a twist in a diehard film. That's one of the things that makes a diehard film a diehard film, Jacob. You think you know what the plot is, but you don't. In the last one, you thought it was terrorism, then it turns out it's a heist, and then it turns out it's a heist where they're going to pretend to kill everyone. Well, here, it's not just Colonel Stewart. We have to have another Special Forces person, Major Grant, John Amos, who, I will admit, I thought was dead until a year before this. (laughs) They killed his character on Good Times when I was a child, and I figured it's because he really died. I didn't understand hay disputes. I just thought the man died. (laughs) And then he showed up coming to america i'm like how's he alive 
And then he showed up again here. This one really got me. I remember at the time, you know, this movie, that was one of the things I remembered coming back to it. I wasn't going to be fooled by this trick. But I remember this reveal when we ultimately find out that his whole squadron is in on it was a shocker. Coming to it now, knowing what I know, it really shouldn't be. There's lots of moments where they telegraph it and they mention the fact that one of their people is a last-minute switch out and that they were even partners. And it shouldn't be a shocker. And I don't know if it would play to me if I hadn't seen the movie before. But I remember it being a good twist at the time. And I guess I'll stand by that. Yeah, the one thing that got me was the bullets, the blanks that they end up shooting. You know, watching it now, like, they focus so much on the clips. You got clips with blue tape. It's really obvious watching it as an adult. The funny thing is, I forgot all about that being a Die Hard 2 thing. To me, that's a Child's Play 3 thing. (laughs) I did think of Child's Play 3 as well, having seen that since. I'm not thinking about it. I refuse to think about it now. But, hey, it's two movies this month. Texas Chainsaw and Die Hard 2, both with the Child's Play 3 connection. (laughs) Meanwhile, Leslie is doing all the real work as John McClane is (laughs) sobbing and running around, accomplishing nothing. He's figured out that something they transmit that beeps doesn't have to beep, and they can tell every plane what's going on. So that's a major coup. But Esperanza has to land. He can't land at the runway that they've designated. And as you pointed out, he has no oxygen. (laughs) Which way do you want it, Stuart? Do you want him to need oxygen or do you want him to land at the first runway? First of all, he would be dead. He would be sucked out of the plane, as Goldfinger has taught me. Second of all, it's also that John McClane can beat the bad guys to the rendezvous point. This is why they do this. It gives John McClane one thing to do. God knows he doesn't have a lot of success in this film, but he does successfully punch this guy out as he lands for his freedom and briefly seems to have the upper hand before the bad guys show up. And McClane even gets to declare, no frequent flyer mileage for you. That one play well in 1990, Stuart? Probably. Uh, not so much now, but <laughs> no. it probably did. This is the nightmare about going back to movies that you loved in childhood is sometimes they can just turn on you and everything you thought was awesome is just kind of overblown and silly and childish. Of course it's childish. What appeals to you in childhood will not, I promise you, appeal to you 20 years later. Do you still like these lines? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Glad I don't have to defend my position on this. A lot of these things are really groan-inducing. But you know what? I'm not sure that I necessarily liked these lines back in the day. I think that a lot of these lines are there. We've come to expect them. Thank you, Arnold. But I think even then, these lines weren't necessarily stand-up-and-cheer kind of lines. I kind of like this situation. I remember being tense then, and even now, I couldn't remember how McClane was going to get out of it when he's trapped in the cockpit, and they're shooting it up and then throwing in grenades. It's a damn shame those blue screen effects don't hold up worth a damn. I knew you'd bring up the blue screen. How could I not? It's not very good. Thank you. Even at the time, I remember feeling like that shot was unsatisfying when he flies up to the camera and goes, Oh, shit! (laughs) They only keep it because it's funny, not because it looks really good. They used to set in the trailers? Yeah, that was on the TV ad. No, no, bury that shot. Bury that. No, here's the thing is it looks good as he's coming up. It looks passable as he's coming up. It's when he falls and he's now all of a sudden moving like a cursor to the left. Yeah, that's what really caught my eye is he goes up and then all of a sudden the parachute's not even out at this point. He just flies over like at a right angle. (laughs) And ILM did this shot. Feel they could have done a little bit better. 
some of these practical effects and blue screen effects did play when they were projected and just they don't hold up now. I wondered why all the terrorists there had, like, machine guns. And McLean's, like, just moseying on down in his parachute. They couldn't have taken a couple of shots? Well, the fire trucks were coming. They're fire trucks! Were they going to use their axes on the terrorists? Hey, they have hoses, too. It's not like they're lacking for cops and security. They could have gotten people there to handle this situation. But again, they are trying to recreate that scenario that only John McClane can accomplish what needs to be done. The problem is, he's not accomplishing anything. It's Leslie, again. While all of this silly running around blowing up things is happening, Leslie is actually doing the hard work that gets things done. He's the one that's retrained some signal that beeps into being a warning for all the planes that so that now they're there in on the plot and nobody can ever be sent down and crash the way Windsor Airlines was. He's also the one that gets the bright idea, hey, if those guys just showed up out of the blue, they must be really close. What do you think's going on at this church? He's the one that does all of this. The thing with that beacon, it gets set up a little bit earlier where Dick Thornburg, who's on one of the planes that's circling the airport, one of his guys has a receiver and, you know, he tells him just to listen to that beep and let him know if anything changes. That occurred to me really early on. Like, if there's this beep that's just beeping, can't they just speak over it? It seems like they took a really long time to figure that out. You want to talk about characters that are brought back needlessly. We didn't even talk about Dick Thornburg. I think that that is one character who perhaps he should have just been on TV and given five seconds like Reginald Vell Johnson. But who really thought this guy needed another arc doing the same thing? Oh, come on. We need the Thornburg Holly comedy hour. Right. We see Thornburg being kicked out of first class because they're out of seat. This flight's supposed to land in, like, 30 minutes. Like, Holly, like, calls John and is like, I'm 30 minutes away. He's just now getting kicked out of first class. They would have never taken it off without having him in a seat. This is ridiculous that he's been reduced to be sitting in coach. It is all a contrivance because they believe that we want to see Holly versus Thornburg again. And you know what? I did enjoy it at the time. Just there's too many scenes of those things now. I mean, this every time they cut to them, I'm waiting for something to develop. And truly, if the worst thing he did was give it a personal account of what's going on to the television media at down below, I don't feel like that's worthy of getting tased. I agree. What he did this movie is nowhere near as bad as what he did last movie. If the villains have really ramped up in villainy this time, this guy, last time he went too far. He invaded their home to interview like a four-year-old girl. This time he's doing his job. He is not inciting panic. Yes, panic is incited, but he's really trying to undo a cover-up. Again, a plane crashed. This should be covered. <laughs> they could cover it after the situation's handled. Here's the thing, though. Again, die hard, tight writing. Like, at the beginning of this film, Holly's speaking to this grandma next to her. Oh, my husband. He just doesn't get technology these days. I'm thinking they're leading up to some big thing where John's going to have to defuse a bomb. And he doesn't understand technology, so it's going to be real tense. No, they use they have this whole speech about how he doesn't like technology to introduce a taser that gets used as a punchline at the end here. This is a very different writing style than we're used to in the first Die Hard. It's the same screenwriter, Steven Zasoza, who would go on to direct action films himself. He was a big, big player in the action script writing business. Isn't it more satisfying to see Bonnie Bedelia punch him out than to see him tased? What do you think about an icicle in the eye? Love it. Love it. These are, again, what really does work in this movie. When they get to that fight at the church... This is, to me, the pinnacle of the movie. 
It should be the ejection from the airplane. It's not. I love the icicle fight, and I love the snowmobile chase. I just think it's kinetic. It's exciting. They're going over the ice, and the ice is breaking as the snowmobile's hitting it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I like that they use this action scene. It's a great action scene. It's fun to watch. You also get these little hints at the plot that's going on. John's trying to shoot him point blank from this snowmobile. Nothing happens. I like that there's action, but it builds to something. It builds to developments later on. I love that icicle in the eye. I mean, it seems like such a horror movie thing, like the way it's done. It's such like a grindhouse style, but I love it. Can't just stab the guy with a knife or shoot him. Got to use an icicle. And if we hadn't figured out by this point that they were shooting blanks, they also cut back to the poor new guy, poor Telford. We knew he was somebody because they made such a big deal about him being new to the crew one day over. He wasn't with them in Granada, so that means, what, he can't be bought off? (laughs) I think that's just supposed to be a shocking reveal, but yeah, I kind of feel bad for the guy. Yeah, you never know, he might have gone along with it if you just, like, given him a moment, but they got a plane to catch. It's time to get to the climax. (laughs) They try to buy off McLean. I think this scene with Major Grant slicing the soldier's throat, I think it is somewhat effective. Again, if I was watching this today, I'd probably pick up on a lot of these clues much sooner. Mm-hmm. But Major Grant, he has this kind of contentious relationship with McLean when he first shows up. So it, it kind of throws you off. Okay, they are on the same side. They're trying to achieve the same goal. So I think that scene where he cuts his throat is effective, you know, because they've convinced the audience that Grant and McLean are on the same side. Here's a way to really shock you. I agree. I can't judge this shock because I know it too well. It is hard to say if this would work for me today, but I think it would. I think I'd be taken. I think I'd be confused, though, because I really want to know exactly how much of the army Esperanza has bought. It's just a little too neat, but... I think I would have been very fooled and gone with it and been like, oh, God, there's nobody McLean can count on. This is the only other terrorist other than Colonel Stewart that I've really had any kind of connection with. By liking him and then doing this flip, it really would play with us. It would toy with us. And I'm going to stand by that. Yeah, it probably would work even today. The thing that's unsatisfying is you have all of these bad guys. And they're all about to get away. They're just going to hop on board a 747, which was happily given to them after all of this. They could have given it to them in the first place and saved 300 lives. And it's only John McClane who's willing to go out after them using the helicopter of that useless, useless reporter character introduced in the first act. You want to talk about stuff set up in the first act, Jacob? There it is. A useless reporter character is introduced so that McClane can have a helicopter. And I thought she was just supposed to be a parody of Atherton, repeating the same storylines. That's why I originally thought she was there. But no, we needed to get him a helicopter. And we needed a data dump, too. She was the one with all the statistics about Esperanza. I don't know how they would have told us that some shame South American dictator was coming otherwise. They showed it while Stewart was doing his naked calisthenics on the TV, like, for hours, it seemed. You know what I would have liked to have seen? Could you imagine just the slight twist of it? Imagine if instead of being in the air, Dick Thornburg happened to be that reporter there, and after being so antagonistic the last film, sure, it doesn't give Bonnie anything to do in the air, but if McLean had to count on Thornburg and get his help, that would have been a nice little twist of what they did before instead of just repeating the same beats. And we get not one, but two fights on the airplane wing. John Amos gets a kind of really gross death by flying into that engine. That one always bothered me. It just feels so real. 
the thing that doesn't feel real is that the engine could survive it. We now know a few pigeons in the engine down a plane. Thanks, Sully. So how could a guy get in a plane wing and the plane's like fine with it? I didn't know that in 1990. I know that now, but I'm sure it worked for people back then. You know, this film, apparently air traffic controllers hate this film because they couldn't get the cooperation of any air traffic controllers to work with them in writing it. So they just pretty much make up all the lingo. So you know what? It's a cool death. Why not? I agree. It's a cool death. Raiders did it first. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. And then Colonel Stewart finishes him off. This was my question, was when it became mano a mano, what would happen? Willis gets kicked off. You know what's weird is, okay, Esperon just shouts at him, hey, no guns, there's fuel on that wing. So it almost feels like a video game, like Grant's fighting McLean. Stewart is just sitting there holding a gun, like he couldn't put the gun down and they could tag team two on one. I think he was hoping he wouldn't have to crawl out there on the wing. <laughs> I do like the end, though. I think it is very well done, but it's anticlimactic. I mean, yeah, you shoved John Amos in an engine, and he deserved it because he was a traitorous bastard. But Stuart wins. Stuart throws McLean off the wing. He almost falls off the wing. He's like, I'm going to open the fuel door. Then he almost falls off the wing again. He's like, now I'm going to yank out the club cap. So I can't figure out exactly how plotted it was, but I think it's a very enticing visual when McLean sets the fuel trail on fire and it chases the plane, jumps up the air and catches the plane and blows it up. Yeah, for an action film, this is a great shot. Great explosion. Like you said, Arnie, the way it goes up in the air following the fuel. I guess what bothers me, you know, the last time we saw a plane blow up in this movie, we get McLean trying to emote or cry. This time, he just starts laughing hysterically. Huh? I guess we're supposed to be, like, clapping and cheering that the terrorists are dead. I don't know if laughter is the right response, though. I think he was happy that he had created a landing light for his wife. Did he realize that, though, when he did that? Was that the purpose of letting the gas out? The whole John McClane doesn't like technology stuff, like, that would be a great punchline if they had built up those hints from the beginning that he couldn't figure out how to turn the runway lights back on, but he'll set the terrorist on fire and create an old-school runway light with this line of fire. Like, I guess if they would have developed that more, I would have got that reading, but I don't get it. I was surprised that they just justified his smoking. You know, he's running around saying, I should give it up, but had he done it, he would not have been able to pull this off. It's only because he had a lighter. Of course, he does, by contract, probably, have to say yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, as he does it. And would we not want him to? Right, exactly. I mean, come on. I was surprised it took this long to get to it. I don't expect there to be a diehard where he doesn't do it at the climax. Wait till part four. They won't let him, censors. But we'll get there. With the last film, you know, we talked about Ode to Joy. So they are going to do something similar here. Bring in another piece of classical music. Because Rennie Harlan is Finnish. They bring in the well-known classical piece, Finlandia. It almost seemed like Winter Wonderland or said like the Nutcracker Suite or something. It just does not have the same impact as Ode to Joy. Oh, I didn't notice. You know, Michael Kamen did the score in the last one. He did this one. I noticed it didn't have as much stings from Christmas tunes, but they do end it with Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. And can I just say, Marv the Janitor is no Argyle. <laughs> I had the same notes. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Die Hard 2? Jacob. I think we brought up a lot of the faults of this film. 
It's a sequel. Whereas Die Hard, to me, that's like one of the epitomes of the action films, one of the standard bearers. This, to me, is almost the same thing. It is a standard bearer for what sequels become. And I don't know if that's a totally positive thing. They try to take a lot of the same beats and do them bigger. And you see that throughout this film. But they also modify a few things. Like I said, the tone here is darker than that first one. Do I like what this film has become? Because it's not Die Hard, and I don't want to try to judge it for not being Die Hard, because that is such a great film. So when I look at Die Hard 2, I said, Die Hard, I've seen three digits, this. I don't know if I've seen this in the two digits. This is a good action film, for the most part. The story, the writing, it's weaker than Die Hard 1. But as far as an action film goes, yeah, it's a pretty good action film. It's got some exciting scenes with the snowmobiles, with some of the shootouts, with the plane crashes. When I talked about Rocky 2, when we talked about Iron Man 2, a lot of those were pushed over that recommend line because of the charismatic leads. You know, Robert Downey Jr., Rocky, I liked those characters. The film was good enough where they had these characters that I liked that it would carry me over. And that's kind of how I feel about Die Hard 2. I still like Willis. He has a lot more groaners in this film, but I still like him as John McClane as this everyday man, cop caught in this situation. Pretty good action film. It's not a strong recommend, but I could recommend this film. Stuart. To paraphrase a catchphrase from another action series of the era, I'm too old for this shit. And it just has nothing for me. I find all the fighting and the action silly. I find the dialogue ridiculous. I just didn't get into it the same way. And I think a lot of that has to do with me. Like, I just don't watch a lot of action movies. I just didn't care the same way. I'm going to give it a mild not recommend because I do have that youthful fondness for it. But I don't think it's very good at all. And certainly, when you judge it by the barometer set by the last film, it dies horribly on the screen. It's much closer the towering inferno than it is to die hard and for me i'm happily not too old for this shit yet i'm still able to enjoy it but i am able to realize an inferior clone of a uh, original when i see it i have probably seen this movie in the double digits of times when it came out on video i saw it quite a bit it replaced die hard in my heavy rotation on vhs Jacob, you said this movie doesn't have Ode to Joy. That's because this movie has no joy. It lacks so much of the fun and what makes the original one special. I'll give it a recommend, but it's a recommend along the lines of a road action film, not really a recommend when compared to the original Die Hard. But I don't think we're alone in thinking it's inferior. Five years would pass before the next Die Hard film would happen. Though we should say this one did way better than the first one. Maybe it's because that first one was so great that carried over to here. I mean, this one blew away all expectations the studios had. A lot of people were like me. They didn't go to see it in the theater, but home video really exploded in the late 80s. Everyone got around to it when it was on cable or VHS, and by the time they had the sequel out, there was a much bigger fan base to go. I know that I did not see that first one, but couldn't wait to see the second one in theaters. Yeah, I think that's the case where sequels did better than the originals because of the home video audience built in. But I think that the studios realized this one just didn't get the love because when John McClane would return, so would John McTiernan. And from this point forward, I am truly a newbie, guys. Haven't seen a one of them. Have no idea what's next. Wow. So we'll be back next week, and don't forget, in the meantime, you can hear our previous two, yes, previous two 
reviews in the Die Hard Retrospective series, including a Frank Sinatra film, by going to our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com, where you'll also find a number of other retrospective series. Before Die Hard, we tacked one on to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you can hear all seven of those reviews. Every Marvel Comics movie ever made. More Rennie Harlan films. You'll find A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 in the archives. There's so much more all at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And from NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find links to our forums, Facebook, and Twitter, where you can discuss these reviews with other listeners. And finally, if you want to hear our reviews of Rennie Harlan's other movies, those being The Exorcist, and Deep Blue Sea, those were donation podcasts that were only made available for a limited time, but right now, there's one way to get them. This is the only time they've ever been re-released on a now-playing 5th anniversary DVD-ROM set that we still have just a few of left for donors. You can find out all the details on how to get this DVD with every podcast we've ever done, donation and otherwise, as well as tons of behind-the-scenes content, extended podcasts, and more. Find all the details clicking the banner at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. So Jacob, Stuart, thank you for joining me, and we'll be back next week with Die Hard with a Vengeance. So thanks for coming to the party, pal! What you get for being a hero? Nothing. Get shot at. Get a little pat on the back. Blah blah blah. Out of boy. Get divorced. A wife can't remember your last name. Kids don't want to talk to you. You have to eat a lot of meals by yourself. Trust me, kid. Nobody wants to be that guy. Then why are you doing this? Because there's nobody else to do it right now. That's why. Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I would let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. That's what makes you that guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, you're still alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Get ready for the downloads. You can hear reviews of Terminator, Predator, The Avengers, Batman, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Launch the downloads. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Baby, come on, baby, come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. This gentleman, as they say, is where the plot thickens. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Welcome to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You like it, huh? How about you give me 20 bucks for it? But I let you live. Man knows how to bark. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. Of terrorist <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? You can also show your love of now playing podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They're for my wife. Yeah. Bag it. Big time. 
Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. I'll be damned if I'm gonna clean up this mess! <laughs> now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You're very impressed with yourself, aren't you? I have my moans. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox. The Detective and Die Hard films are the property of 20th Century Fox and no infringement is intended. Listen, uh, you're not pissing in somebody's pool, are you? <laughs> yeah, and I'm fresh out of chlorine. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. That was unpleasant. Don't let it happen again. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013 all rights reserved and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. Happy trails, Hans. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. They send one of them crashing into the snowy, uh, what is it called? Runway. Runway, thank you, yeah. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. We get one but not two fights on the wing. First, uh... You want to say that again? You said one but not two. And we get two but... And we get... Well, yeah, what am I saying? Not one but two. There we go. And we get one but not two. That's the expression. <laughs> No, no, not one, not one but, but two. Okay, gotcha. All right. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Uh, real quick, I just want to know how much listeners have to donate for Stuart's naked sweat into the oldies. <laughs> I believe that is $2 million. <laughs> I'm holding you to that if someone donates it. You will. I will so do that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He'd do it for half a million. Come on. By the way, that is all my money. There's like no, you guys get none of that. If I have to like do Simmons, first of all, that's the most embarrassing part. <laughs> oh no, it gets split among all hosts. It's my party and I cry if I want to. All right. So now we know what you are. We're just negotiating the price. Yippee-ki-yay. Motherfucker. <laughs>